I'm excited for today's message. It's from one of our longtime leaders, uh, Moses Shoyola. He and his wife, Sherry, are an absolute gift to our community. Those of you who know them have been blessed by them. Some of you have seen Moses lead some of our devotionals, and so you know his love for God's Word, that he wants you not just to hear it, but to let it sink in so you know it deeply and then experience the benefits of obeying it. So I'm excited for you to hear his message this morning. Uh, when I asked him how to say his last name so I didn't look like a fool, uh, he said it's Shoyola, like show your love. <laughs> and I'll never forget it, and neither will you. Um, and I, that's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to show him some love as he preaches. And you hear something that is good, I want you to tell him. <laughs> and I want you to tell him through social media. Take a snapshot, quote him, put it on your Insta story, whatever it is. And say thank you to him for what he's doing. If it hits a little too close to home and it, it kind of hurts a little bit, but you know you need it, say ouch. <laughs> but I needed to hear that. Share with those who you're with. Um, this is such an opportunity for us not just to consume, but to truly participate in the preaching of God's word. And so I'm excited for you to hear from Moses this morning. But first, I wanted you to hear the scripture passage from another member of our community, Mickey Whitman. Good morning. There are two scripture readings today. The first is from John 17, 14 through 19. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should be taken out of the world, but that you, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. The second reading is from Ephesians 4:31 through 5:2. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Good morning, LMCC. It is so good to be with you all this morning. Sherry and I are still riding out the coronavirus wave in Atlanta as of this recording, but believe it or not, we're actually making our plans to come back to New York City. And one of the things we are most excited about is getting to be with you all in person. And we know that that's gonna be a while and it's gonna take some time till that's a safe thing that we can do. But man, whenever that day comes, it's gonna be awesome. It is such a privilege to get to speak with you all this morning. God has been speaking in this chaotic and confusing time. And it is chaotic and confusing. Coronavirus is taking lives, there's economic turmoil, and this reckoning with racial injustice that we're finally having. And it's hard to know up from down, left from right, truth from lies, and the, begs the question of what should we as Christians be doing in all of this? What is our role in all of this? And the phrase that keeps coming back to me over and over and over again is this phrase that you heard read. Uh, it's a paraphrase of a phrase you heard read in Jesus's words earlier, which is be in the world, but not of the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. And 
you know, when I hear that, because it's a phrase that comes up a lot in Christian circles, it's sounds wise and nice and Shakespearean even. But to be honest, it's kind of confusing. And when you first hear it, not exactly sure what it means. It's a little jargony. But I think it's so important and speaks so acutely into this moment. And if we can get this ingrained into our hearts in terms of what this means and really unpack it, then we'll be able to properly go from being quarantined to commissioned and being able to bring God's kingdom in our communities and in our city. So what I want to do is use this morning's message to unpack this phrase, be in the world but not of the world, and answer three questions. What, how, and why? First, what are we called to be doing? What does it mean to be in the world? Second, how are we called to be doing it? What does it mean to not be of the world? And third, why? Why does God care about this? Why should you care about this? Why should everyone else around you care about this? So first, what are we called to be doing? And that question is answered by the first part of that phrase, be in the world. Now, a lot of us here be in the world, and I think we get it wrong sometimes when we misinterpret this and think that what it means is that we're supposed to just passively endure our world, get through it, cultivate personal morality, cultivate personal holiness and our personal relationship with God. And that's the entire point. And if we engage in the problems of the world, eh, that's not core. It's extra credit. You know, people do that, great, kudos to them. If I do it on occasion, great, kudos to me. But it's not a core requirement. And what I want us to hear today is that engaging in the problems of the world is not extra credit. It is a requirement of our walk with Christ. It's not extra credit. And so there are two ways that God calls us to be in the world. And the first is to emulate the prophets as God's mouthpiece. And the second is to emulate the apostles as God's hands and feet. So first, emulating the prophets as God's mouthpiece. And second, emulating the apostles as God's hands and feet. So emulating the prophets, what does this mean? Well, when we look at the prophets of the Old Testament, what we see over and over and over again is that they are the ones who are God's spokesmen. If you want to know what God feels about an issue, look at what the prophets say. Because he frequently goes to them and says, hey, I have this message for my people. Take it, go, give it to them. And what they're constantly doing is confronting sin, both on the individual level and on the societal level. So on the individual level, we see this frequently. We're really familiar with this. Samuel confronts Saul when he disobeys. Nathan confronts David when he commits adultery and murder and calls them to individual repentance. But man, we are missing a whole swath of scripture if we don't see that God also cares deeply about societal sins and rails against them. Doesn't take it lightly. Some of his harshest words from the prophets are reserved for people who either participate in societal sin or stand idly by while these sins are being committed. Three examples of this I wanted to share because I just wanted to illustrate that this is a consistent pattern of God actually railing against societal sin, not just individual sin. 
So three different prophets, three different passages. First from Isaiah 59, your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. From Jeremiah 7, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. And from Amos 5, Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of home stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gates. What we see here is God is deeply concerned and hates societal sin. He hates it. And to combat this, he wants people to stand up for him, to speak out against these injustices like he had the prophets do. He wants people to stand up and speak out. So what does this look like for us? Let's talk about systemic racism. That's the big issue. Let's talk about it. What emulating the prophets and being God's mouthpiece would look like with this issue is first being, being able to say like Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. I don't know where you're going to call me to go. I don't know what you're going to ask me to say, but my posture is open. Whatever you have to say, wherever you have to send me, here I am, send me. And then it's a posture of seeking asking God where are the opportunities give me opportunities to speak for you to stand up against those things that you hate and then you follow his leading you might find that he's leading you to go to a protest you might find that he's leading you to affirm the statement black lives matter even if you don't rock with the organization or that he's calling you to Confront your friends when they say something racist in private. Make a joke. Or to confront people when they deny that this is an issue altogether. It's going to look different for each of us. But the key is that we're supposed to diligently seek God and ask him for these opportunities to stand up for him. Because it's not extra credit. It's a requirement. That's what it means to emulate the prophets. The first way of being in the world is being God's mouthpiece, speaking up against these issues. The second way to be in the world is to emulate the apostles. And put simply, what God wants us to do is be do-gooders. He wants us to be do-gooders. And I use that phrase intentionally because that phrase comes with a lot of naive idealism we think of the 
Peace Corps and granola and our cynical New York mentality is just like, ugh. But you cannot read the New Testament without stumbling on that phrase, do good or doing good over and over and over again. In Galatians, let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us do good to all. In 1 Thessalonians, always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. In Philippians 2, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In 1 Timothy, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. And in James, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. It's clear that God wants us to do good, to bring his kingdom, to care for the most vulnerable, to right society's wrongs. And it's not just the apostles that teach this. Jesus himself teaches it. We have to remember that passage from Matthew where he welcomes some and he rejects others. And it's terrifying and hopeful at the same time because some he says, welcome, come, I accept you. Why? Because I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. Come. And those people are going to be like, Jesus, we want to come. Absolutely. But just in all transparency, we never saw you naked or in prison or hungry or sick. And Jesus will say, to the extent that you did this for anyone in this situation, you did it to me. So come, I welcome you. But then the terrifying part is to another group, he says, get away from me, depart from me, it says. Why? Because I was sick and you didn't take care of me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't come visit me. So depart, get away from me. And they'll say the same thing, Jesus, but we didn't see you sick or hungry or naked or in prison. And Jesus will say to them, to the extent that you ignored anyone in this situation, you ignored me, so get away from me, depart from me. And that just goes to show that it's not optional. It's not extra credit. It's a requirement. So a good example of what it looks like to do good we can find in the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is a great illustration because it shows all the different kinds of sacrifices we need to make in order to do good. So I'll just recap the story really quickly. Guy is traveling down a deserted road and he gets beaten half to death and robbed. The religious elite pass by and they see him laying there and they're like, I don't want to get involved in that. And so they keep it moving cross over the street, keep their journey going. And then a Samaritan sees him from over the street and is like, what's going on with that guy? He has compassion, he crosses over to where he is. He bandages him up. He pours oil and wine on him, puts him on his animal, takes him to a hotel, takes care of him there, spends the night, then gives the innkeeper a ton of money and says, hey, use this to take care of the guy. If there's any more expense beyond this, let me know. I'll just, just spend it and let me know because I'll repay it on my way back. And so what we see here are three different kinds of sacrifices. 
financial time and bodily sacrifice. In financial sacrifice, he uses all of his resources, his most expensive goods, wine and oil, his money at the inn for lodging and for his medical expenses and his credit card. He says, hey, if there's any expenses unforeseen, take care of them, I will come repay it. He sacrifices his time, he delays his journey a day at least, maybe longer, to take this guy to the inn, spend the night with him, and he says he'll return on the way back, so probably two days. And finally, his very body, he puts himself in harm's way, lingering on this dangerous road to bandage this guy up and pour oil and wine on him and sacrifices his very body for the sake of helping this guy. And these are the actions, bodily sacrifice, time sacrifice, financial sacrifice, about which Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Which means when we see other people hungry and naked, stripped and persecuted and beaten. We sacrifice our bodies, our time, our resources, our status, our money to make their lives better. That's what it means to do good. That's what it means to emulate the prophets. That's what it means to be in the world. So we see being in the world is speaking against injustice as the prophets did and it's doing good as the apostles did and as Jesus commands. But once we've figured out what we're supposed to be doing, how we do it matters a lot to God. Matters a lot. And that brings us to the second part, which is that as we're engaging in the world, there's a specific way we're supposed to do it. How are we supposed to do it? And that's answered by the second part of the phrase, be not of the world. Jesus says it in the positive in another place, be salt and light. We're meant to be the flavor in all the blandness of the world. We're meant to be the brilliance in all the darkness of the world. We're meant to reject the world's characteristics and put on the characteristics of Christ in the way we engage in the world. So what are those characteristics of the world that we're meant to reject? There's a bunch of lists throughout the New Testament, so I'll just point to two. One that's found in Galatians 5 and the other in Ephesians 4. In Galatians 5, it's written, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, hatred, strife, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, factions, divisions, and it goes on and on. They who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in Ephesians 4, which you heard read earlier, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now those are some long lists, so I'll just repeat a few of them for us that are particularly relevant here. Enmity, hatred, strife, outbursts of wrath, factions, divisions, bitterness, clamor, malice. Sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? Hatred, strife, factions, divisions. Doesn't that sound a lot like our culture where people with different viewpoints have to end friendships? (laughs) 
where people with different viewpoints are seen as evil or stupid and deserving of condemnation. Outbursts of wrath. Doesn't that sound a lot like our culture? Where people react swiftly and mercilessly without fully engaging and investigating? Bitterness and anger. Doesn't that sound a lot like our culture? Are any of the loudest voices on any of these issues, do any of them sound joyful? Does everybody just sound pissed off all the time? We know it's not good for us. We know it's unhealthy for our world, for our culture, for ourselves. We know there has to be a better way. And thank God there is. Right after that list, where he says people who practice these things like bitterness and hatred and strife will not inherit the kingdom of God, says, but, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit and his fruits that's the cure, the antidote to our culture's sickness. That's what will bring the restoration to our culture's brokenness. So what this looks like is, instead of hatred and enmity and factions, there's love and kindness and gentleness. Instead of ending friendships over different viewpoints, we pursue and forgive, we gently correct and persuade. Instead of outbursts of wrath, or we react swiftly and mercilessly and cancel people, it looks like self-control and faithfulness. Self-control and faithfulness, that means doing the work being diligent to thoroughly investigate and engage in dialogue, not writing people off. Doing the work to come up with a sustained solution to our problems. Now, don't let the need for diligence be an excuse where you say, well, you know, until we get to the very bottom of this issue, like I can't get involved. That's laziness. That's what that is. Laziness is the opposite of self-control. Self-control and faithfulness are discipline and diligence to put in a sustained effort to come up with effective solutions. And lastly, instead of bitterness and anger, it looks like joy and peace and patience. Yes, we share in the righteous anger of God towards the injustices of society. But we know God's kingdom is coming. And we get to participate in that. And that should just give us so much joy. We know that every tear will be wiped away and every captive will be set free. And that assurance should give us such great peace. We know 
how it all ends. We know that the glory of God's kingdom will be here at the end. And that produces patience as we look at God, we look at his long time horizon, and we can be patient with him as he does his work and patient with other people as they stumble and learn and figure it out. That's what it looks like to not be of the world, to reject these negative characteristics of wrath and anger, bitterness, strife, factions, and abide in the Holy Spirit so we exhibit His fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. As we engage in society, we do it Christ's way. So now that we've seen what it means to be in the world, engaging in the problems of the world, confronting societal sins, doing good by sacrificing ourselves for the improvement of others, and we see that we're supposed to do it God's way, with the Holy Spirit's fruits of love and joy and patience and goodness, question of why. Why should we do this? And there's one main answer, which is that God said so, and that should be reason enough. But he's gracious, and he gives us additional reasons why these things are important. And two that I want to hit particularly on, one is the bigger picture, God's big plan, his plans for the universe, his plans for his kingdom. And one is the individual personal motivation for this. So on the bigger picture level, the reason that we should be doing this, the reason that we should be doing good, but in God's way, is that it is our witness. It will attract more people to him. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the ultimate purpose of all of this. All of it. More and more people in relationship with Christ and in God's kingdom and more and more glory to God. That's the point. Point blank, end of story, that is the point. So when we forget this, when we're not engaged in the world and only focused on ourselves, we're not advancing his kingdom. When we engage in the world but do it Christ's way, our witness is compromised and no one's attracted to that. And we're not advancing his kingdom. So that's why we have to do this his way. To bring more people into his kingdom and more glory to him. And the second more personal reason is that we have received so much undeserved good and mercy and kindness from God in a way that was patient and totally free from condemnation. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in rebellion against him, while we were engaged in hatred toward him, while we were serving ourselves instead of him and others, Christ died for us. And the only proper response to that is overwhelming gratitude and a lavish outpouring of whatever good and mercy that we can muster to pour out on other people, both the vulnerable and the victims of injustice and the perpetrators of injustice. Why? Because while we were yet sinners, while you were a sinner and I was a sinner, Christ died for us. And so if you and I aren't beyond his redeeming work, no one is. No one is. So as we reckon with all these problems in our world that are especially top of mind right now, Let's remember these words of Christ to be in the world, to engage with the world's problems, to stand up as his mouthpiece, to do good by sacrificing ourselves. But let's not be of the world. Let's do it his way. Let's do it his way. With the Holy Spirit influencing us and guiding us and helping us to pour out love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And in so doing, bring more glory to God and more people in his kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. You are so glorious. There's none like you. And we just thank you for what you've done for us, redeemed us, brought us into your kingdom. God, the only response to that, Lord, the only response is to do good, to stand up for you, and to do it your way. So Holy Spirit, lead us, influence us, show us how, give us opportunities to stand up for you in your way. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us and giving us this power to be your mouthpiece, your hands and feet in this world. It's only by your power that we can do this. So we pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.